Hello, it's Wiggly podcast number two, and I'm joined here by Richard once again. Hi, Rich. Oh, hello, you all right? Yep. We've got lots this week to talk about, Rich. And we've got news from behind the scenes at Wiggly's, what's been going on. You're going to talk about hedgehogs. Yes, that's right. Uh, we've got Farmer Phil coming in. Uh, you've been reading a book, I think. I have. The Wildlife Ponds by Jenny Steele. Great. We've got Alison popping in. Alison grows our plants. She's going to pop in with Plant of the Week. And then we've got Monty's Wormcast. So, lots to get on with. What's been happening this week at Wiggly's then? Well, I know you've been out and about, haven't you? I have. Last week, Wiggly's, we did our schools project in a local school in Hereford where um, I, I worked with approximately 240 children to recreate a, an existing wildlife area that had been left neglected slightly. Um, the, the trees had got too large and the pond had got a huge leak in it and whatnot. So mm. we replaced the pond and made some fantastic seating out of some old silver birch that was there and made some log piles and put some slabs down and compost heaps, all sorts of really neat things. We also made some bug bottles. I got the kids to bring in plastic bottles yeah. and uh, on site there were lots of teasels growing and cow parsley. So we cut the stems and we stuffed the bottles full of the stems to make fantastic little bug bottles which we've kind of taped to downpipes across the school grounds. Fantastic. Really you had the nice fire brigade in, didn't you? Yeah, the fire brigade came in and filled the pond. Oh, that's what it was. Saved the school a few quid, because, of course, <laughs> they're on metered waters. So I think that's the schools often quite like doing that, and the fire brigades are usually uh, fairly flexible, so they often pop in and fill the pond up I in, didn't in, know in that. minutes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, from <laughs> my, my end, what have I been up to? Well, we went to an awards ceremony that's right yeah very nice at the birmingham botanical gardens we actually won the award which was the award for the british small business champion for the central region yeah. um which means that we'll be going on through to the final it's quite an achievement isn't it really well i think it's you know no need for false modesty no no false modesty <laughs> we must be on the right track mustn't we yeah yeah that, that must yeah. be it but i don't think you can take these things too seriously um, but even so, it was a very nice evening yeah, with a good sure. tea party. And the prize was presented by Jonathan Davis, who's a Welsh rugby player, and now he's a TV commentator. And honestly, this is what happened. He's on the table waiting for his wine to come, and the waitress comes, and she says to him, what would he like, blah, blah, and he has a chat, and he says to her, what's the vegetarian? And she truly said back to him, it's a person who doesn't eat meat, sir. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, you know, I got to kiss him, which was nice. And, yeah, yeah, just a and, job. And uh, there yeah. were six of us who went. And so now off we go to London, and there's an even better tea party because it's at Claridge's. Wow. And if Wiggly Wigglers wins this event, we get a tailor-made trip to New York. Ooh. So that's just for me, obviously. Yeah, that's right, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, we'll see. Yeah. Um, and also, you did a talk, didn't you? I did, I did a talk. You, you escaped, didn't you? That's, I did. Uh, you, did you, you, you missed out that, that particular uh, opportunity. I did a talk to uh, a local rotary club in Ledbury about gardening for wildlife. I think they were all sort of anticipating a, a talk specifically about worms. But uh, oh, I, I went into kind of more detail and talked about how important it was to garden for wildlife, not just creating ponds, wildflower habitats, but also growing vegetables and not using pesticides and chemicals to control 
caterpillars and aphids and whatnot. Did they use pesticides? Yeah, what I think most, it was interesting. It? Like, so I asked how many people, because like, I've been working in school, so I asked yeah. everybody to put their hands up, you know, through the whole It's gone process. to your head, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, I asked how many people used pesticides. Pretty much everyone in the room that was into their gardening used pesticides. <laughs> so obviously my, you know, I, I, my work was cut out. <laughs> they but, all yeah, had dead they, slugs they, and yeah, dead worms. They did, dead slugs, dead worms, dead, dead hedgehogs, yeah. I think. Yeah, nice rose blooms, but nothing else in the garden. That's a good challenge for you, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was just trying to get across the message that you can often get as much pleasure, if not more pleasure, from observing ladybird larvae feeding on the aphids, on your rosebuds, and perhaps not having that perfect rosebud. It's a small price to pay. It's just a little compromise from being able to, to look at the, the fantastic array of, of invertebrate life that you have on your plants if you don't use chemical pesticides. Mm. And you can't have preached to them very much because they wrote in as an email to say how much they'd enjoyed the talk and hoped that we'd come again. So no, I can't have too bad. Well. I can't have yeah. intimidate them too much. Anyway, we've got to move on. What I want to talk about this week is hedgehogs. Hedgehogs, yeah. Mm. It's yeah. the time of year that hedgehogs spring to mind, isn't it? You know, time of year when they get stuck under bonfires that you're building and they're hibernating and everything's action for hedgehogs. Quite possibly. Interesting enough, people have, I've been asked several questions about hedgehogs recently. How do we provide a nice place for them to hibernate in the garden? How do we attract them into the garden to make sure they're there to feed on our slugs and whatnot? So what do we do then to attract hedgehogs or well, give them shelter? There are various ways and means. Hedgehogs will often hibernate underneath your garden shed yeah, or perhaps in a compost heap. But you can provide uh, habitats for them by perhaps making a small box for them to hibernate in. What they do naturally is they'll hibernate, say, for instance, under the butt of a hedge and they'll harvest lots of leaves, mm. dry leaves, and they'll make a nest and they'll go in there and, mm. that's, and that's where they'll hibernate. Um, apparently what they do do as well is throughout the course of the year they will change their bedding material so they won't sleep right through. They'll wake up at points and change their nesting material. Why do they do that then? I, well, I don't know. It might be something to do with the, their excreting and then perhaps their nesting material becomes oh, damp. Booing. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, possibly. Oh. Possibly. I mean, that's my take on it. It might not be the case, but the chances are it, it's also because of the weather. If the subject to persistent rain, for instance, then their bedding material might be breaking down, so they might want warmer, better, stronger cover, so they'll change it according to the, the state that it's in. And so their eating pattern, what do they... Well, they feed right through. They don't know, as people assume that hedgehogs kind of hibernate through the winter. Well, they do hibernate through the winter, but sometimes they won't hibernate until December. In most cases, it's November, but, you know, with our climate changing and the way it is, and if there's food available until later right until the last knockings of the year and they're able to feast on various grubs and berries and whatnot mm. then they won't hibernate right until the end of the year and they're disasters for hedgehogs there's been a lot of press about you know rescuing hedgehogs and rehoming hedgehogs from islands are they yeah. doing well or are I they think, I think struggling? they're not yeah in lots of cases small british mammals they're not doing particularly well but it's mostly as a consequence of loss of habitat again right. you know the whole kind of intensive agricultural thing build development and roads have a major impact on hedgehog populations or cars even cars yeah <laughs> yeah big time yeah i know that slug pellets have been a complete disaster for hedgehogs haven't they? they're a total disaster i mean what happens is people might see hedgehogs in their garden after they put slug pellets down yeah but the toxins build up in their body over time right so you might end up with a situation where the hedgehog will be feeding on slugs that ingested some of the slug pellets and then the toxins build up so they might be all right for 12 months and then those toxins build up to such an extent mm. they'll die much later on 
And also the way that we used to make ponds, you haven't got a really shallow way out. Yeah. These days, if you make a wildlife pond, you generally have very shallow edges, don't you? But yeah. it used to be that <coughs> concrete ponds are a disaster for Yeah, they'll bundle in. They can swim. They're quite good swimmers and they're reasonable climbers as well, hedgehogs. But of course, if there's a steep-sided pond they can't get out of, then there's, there's no hope at all. Interestingly enough, a couple of years ago, I had a garden pond at home and I went out, it was, a, it was early spring, it was still pretty cold, and I went out in the morning to, I think, probably get some wood in for the fire or something, and I looked across the pond, and there were two hedgehogs in the pond on a small island. <laughs> but, but they were slightly separated <laughs> no, from one another. No, this is lots of, No, this is right, this, this is, is right. True, right. And there was lots of grunting and snorting going on, you know, really kind of vocal... And I looked at them for ages. I thought, oh, what are those two doing there? But they'd obviously been in the water as well, and they'd gone in the pond and clambered out of the pond. And it, it, it was gladiators. <laughs> but what it must have been is that over animus, over. Um, God. Amorous. Amorous, animus. <laughs> over amorous male. Yeah. He's, he's had a long winter. He's just come out of hibernation. He's found a mate. And she's like, oh my God, I've got to get away from this guy. And they both ended up in the pond. And they were both in the pond. They were both, you know, kind of cold and snorting. And so I caught them both and put them and warmed them up. Gave them a bit of food. Gave them a bit of food. Yeah, separately. Because I wasn't sure whether, you know. But I I let them go later on in the same garden. So whether he caught up with her again, I don't know. Quite possibly. But obviously that pond was created with hedgehogs in mind, you know, to make sure that they can get out of the pond if they fall in there. No, I thought you meant it was created with hedgehogs in mind who happened to fall in that happened to have two islands. No, so uh, interestingly enough, that one of the most important criteria in creating a pond is to make sure that things can get out of it as well as get in. Absolutely. Wow. (laughs) Any other... Hedgehog. Uh, hedgehog stories. Antics. Well, it's interesting. We used to live in a garden uh, that was loads and loads of hedgehogs. And uh, I've got one or two dogs. The one's completely loopy. And, uh, what sort of dog? George Terriers, they are. But he's a real George of the jungle, this terrier. So he'll go out. He goes out at night. He goes running around the garden barking and stuff. A couple of times he'd come back in and his mouth was all covered in blood. You know, just like it's a white terrier. His <laughs> gums are bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> so I went out and had a look and there's a kind of hedgehog just trundling along the garden and what the dog had been doing is trying <laughs> to bite the hedgehog but of course because idea. they've got their fantastic prickles and they curl up into a ball they, they um, you know the dog was biting at it and getting all these prickles in his mouth as well so he's kind of licking his gums for ages and the hedgehog just ambling off thinking oh I wonder what that was all about why have they got, I mean how did they end up having those well, I mean, that's obviously a good example of why they've got that, that kind of armoury like that, is to, is to protect themselves. But interestingly enough, one of their main predators in the wild are badgers. They can just, you know, flip a hedgehog over and they will, you know, they'll, they'll kill a hedgehog by trying to kind of prise them apart and then chewing at their bite in their undercarriage. So, a bit unfortunate for hedgehogs. And they're supposed to be very good to eat. You know, there's, there's, really? there's all sorts of yeah. There's, there's um, you can't people old, there, can traditionally you? Old, old English people used to bake them. Yeah, bake them in mud. And if you kind of bake them, wrap them in clay, and bake them in mud, then when you when you crack open the muddy shell, all the prickles come off, and the, the skin comes off in, in the mud shell. So you end up with this baked animal. Which brings me on to my other thing, which is the best way of conservation is to eat it because if you eat <laughs> it right. you've got a demand for it absolutely absolutely <laughs> 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 I don't think you can eat it 
Hedgehog. I really don't. <laughs> I think it might fit no, the no, off. no. That's right. They're beautiful animals to have. They're, they're a real benefit to the natural gardener mm. because they are so useful at keeping pests down. Not only do they look good, there are instances like you mentioned in the Isle of Lewis earlier on. There are instances where hedgehogs, okay. you know, eat ground nesting birds' eggs, and in that instance, the, the population of hedgehogs had grown to such an extent that they were really affecting the population of Dunlins' eggs. I think it's probably something like yeah. that. Yeah, uh, or plovers, plovers' eggs. So, they haven't got any predators at so no, no predators, then. no cars, no roads, plenty of habitat. Uh, All they need mm-hmm. is somebody to eat them then. They, they need not. they need predators, yeah. They need predators to check them, but not quite to the extent that they've got them in, in mainland UK at the moment. And so if somebody finds a hedgehog in their <coughs> garden, what should they do and what shouldn't they do? Uh, they definitely shouldn't use slug pellets. Nope. And only natural sources of uh, no milk, milk. Milk isn't good. Apparently, it gives them diarrhoea. Yeah. Cat food is, is supposed to be okay. Yeah. Though you know, it's quite they nice if you want to try and attract well. them. Do they really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, mealworms, of course, are so nutritious, aren't they? Mm. So fatty and you know, full of protein. Really, a kind of natural source of food. And water. Water's good. Yeah. Do uh, they do drink? But again, you see, they'll get a lot of water from their food. Would you imagine slugs have got, have got to be some sort of yeah, content of, juicy, of yeah. yeah. Great, that's lovely. Next week we'll be talking about feeding birds. It's coming up to the RSPB Feed the Birds Day, so we'll be chatting about what foods, when, why, and all about that. It's that time of the week again, Rich. It's Farmer Phil's report. Excellent. Well, this week we've continued planting our winter crops. We've had a good week. It's been interesting in as much that, uh, as I mentioned last week, we've seen various wildlife around the place. I've got the barn owls hunting in the periphery of the lights at night, which is great to watch. Mm. They're like ghosts, and obviously they're after the mice that we plough up or whatever. It'd be interesting to know, and I don't know the answer to this, how territorial they are and how big their territories are because I don't know whether I'm looking at two, four or six barn owls. It just depends on how far we think they go. Mm. Um, well, it would be interesting to find out. Well, perhaps our listeners can email in yeah. and let us know yeah. how far knows. barn owls go. Yeah. And, um, uh, anyway, I thought you'd been planting at David Beckham's new football pitch. Yeah, we, well, I'm pleased to tell you that <laughs> potentially David Beckham's new football pitch is more than planted. It's growing and coming up. Excellent. But yes, Why we, is it, David Beckham? We, we grow um, amenity ryegrass, which is basically the ryegrass that you'd use to plant football pitches. And since the variety that we grow is top of the list, it tends to get sold to the main stadiums around the country, football, cricket and so on. And therefore, it's entirely possible that Mr Beckham and his colleagues get to play on some of our grass seed at some point. Right. That sounds a little far-fetched. Have you got any proof of this, Phil? Absolutely. Our grass seed, off the top of my head, was used at Southampton's stadium. Hardly first division, is it? And the Millennium (laughs) Stadium. (laughs) Anywhere else that your grass seed is planted? A variety that we grew until a couple of years ago is used on the centre court at Wimbledon. Anything else you want to tell us about? A trait that we've noticed this year, in terms of the fallow deer that we have on the farm... We normally only see the females and youngsters at this end of the farm, but in the last fortnight I've seen at least half a dozen young stags or bucks at this end of the farm, which is unusual. But I don't think there's anything untoward going on, but it's nice to see them, and just going dusk when they're stood there 
with their antlers. They're quite impressive beasts. Mm. I don't think I'd want to argue with one anyway. Fantastic animals, aren't they? We're quite lucky in some respects to have fallows in, in Herefordshire. People often say they're not indigenous to Herefordshire, they shouldn't be here, we should have roes and, and whatnot instead and red deer, but of course the reality is that we wouldn't have red deer now here anyway, and the chances are you might not have roes in your area. So We, we, you know, we have got have a pair of roes that I know of, and we have seen one or two of the little species that it's I can't muntjac. remember. Muntjac. Muntjacks, yeah. yes. We've got yeah. a few muntjacks about as well, but they're very shy. You don't see them very often. Yeah, but the rows are quite well. funny because being rather sturdier deer, they don't look as if they can run very fast, and Toast can't resist chasing them if she sees them. <laughs> but there's not a hope in <laughs> hell of no catching them, there's and no it's way, very yeah. funny watching her try. Deer will dance as well sometimes, won't they? When they're, if they're being chased by something that they know that they can run away from easily, they sort of dance in front of it just to make it look like a, a fool. They, they are amazing things in terms of what they can jump. They make it look entirely effortless how, how they do it. They will clear a fence by feet without looking to expend any energy at all. It's yeah. amazing. It is amazing, and yet, by contrast, sometimes they get hung up in barbed wire fences, don't they? Yeah. Having watched them, I think that happens when they're not frightened. Yeah. They sort of sidle up to the fence and think they're just going to hop over it and don't yeah. try particularly, yeah. and then get themselves entangled in it. And I've, I've watched them do it and had to go and disentangle them. Yeah. And whereas if, if something spooks them and they set out to jump it properly, they clear it no by feet. No at all. Yeah. What do they eat? Well, they graze, I think, in much the same way as sheep. Don't you mind them grazing in the fields, then? If I was feeling churlish, I probably would mind them, but they're nice to look at, and they're almost impossible to stop, so that it, deer fencing is very expensive stuff. It's cheaper to let them have the run of the place. We like the look of them, and it's not a great hardship. Well, thank you very much, Phil. We'll wind it up there. Well, thank you both very much. We'll thank see you, you next Phil. week. Cheers. Nice to see you. Book review this week is Wildlife Ponds by Jenny Steele. Very small book, very concise book few pages, few pictures on really how to make your own wildlife pond. Would you say that was fair, Rich? Yeah, it's a nice little book. It's, it's, it is, like you say, very concise. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a practical little handbook, and it really kind of gives the beginner an insight into creating a wildlife pond. Yeah, I think it's 375, and there's sort of 34 pages. It goes into quite a bit of detail in terms of plants. What did you think of it? It's a nice little tool to have before you create the pond. In fact, it might be if people are seriously thinking about creating a pond and they haven't got enough information at hand, it might be something that they can complement their project with. There are a couple of interesting things in there that I wasn't entirely sure about. Lining the pond, Jenny mentioned that you could use old carpet and cardboard to line the pond before you put a liner in, which is a good idea. Mm. But the trouble with cardboard and carpet is that it rots. So that lining eventually will disappear. So if you did have anything particularly prickly underneath the liner, then chances are it might poke through after mm. a while. So, you know, you could use that, but I would use it um, in conjunction with a, a geotextile or something that isn't going to rub yeah. something that isn't biodegradable or, or sand, stay in the ground for ages. Sand Definitely use sand. I mean, Jenny did say to use sand in there as well, but again, a sand is a sort of complement to the, to the geotextile. So. Yeah. So well, that I was suppose it also depends on the size of it. It's not too big a deal if you put your carpet underneath a, a tiny pond no. to reline it or whatever. Right, but if it's right. a substantial pond, it's a the substantial last pond thing you've you got to get do. in it to yeah. clean it out, for instance, yeah. then it needs to be really well protected. Jenny is an interesting author. She's been here and given chats around our garden on the wildlife that's in it, and she does RHS talks right. as well. Right. 
so she's quite well known in the in the world of wildlife gardening and yeah. writing. She writes for various magazines. And I think you can see that in the book. Really. You can. She knows the stuff, obviously. Does she live quite locally as well? She lives in Shropshire now. She did have a wildlife garden down in Oxford. Right. Right in the middle of everywhere, you had this oasis of garden. But I think she got fed up of the noise. The other thing I noticed in the book, it's exactly right what she says when she talks about creating ponds. She says, try not to create a pond with a, with a saucer shape because of the, a big surface area, the, the water will get evaporated that much quicker, so it means topping it up you know, more frequently in the summertime. But by contrast, if you're creating a wildlife pond in the school ground, for instance, then yeah. it's good to use a saucer shape, purely because if the kids fall in, then they can easily walk out again. Yeah, and she talks about wh- which sort of liner to use, to use concrete, didn't we, and stuff like that. Yeah, old-fashioned. That was, tra- that was a kind of traditional way of really making a, a robust pond. Yeah. But of course, we've come to realise now that concrete has some real flaws because it, <laughs> it, it tends to crack. In fact, I've never known a pond made of concrete that doesn't crack eventually. No. Either through the, the natural uh, shrinking process of concrete, but also because it you know, freezes up in the winter and the ice will crack a pond as it expands. Also, I mean, we followed this book when we made our pond here at Blakemere, and by using a liner, it means that you can have a completely natural-shaped pond. You know, yeah. It actually can look as if it may have Absolutely. just occurred. Absolutely, which, you can. It just you know, follows the contours of the land, nicer. doesn't it? A yeah. butyl liner, it really does. It just kind of follows the contours of the ground, and, and then you can... And she finishes off with a look at, well, she calls them bog gardens. I can't stand that word, so we call them marshes. Right, right. Wigglies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bog gardens. That's better, darling. Horrible, isn't it? But it goes quite alongside the um, pond quite nicely if you use the overflow to make the marsh, so the lower ground. Yeah. Because that means that if there's an overflow from the pond, it goes into the marsh. But right. actually just spike a few holes in the bottom of the butyl of your marsh and fill it back up to the surface. The only thing is, you have to be careful that it doesn't dry out for massive periods of time. Although Rob, our wildflower guy, says that it, months through the summer it can be completely dry and those plants survive without a problem. Yeah. Anyway, it's Wildlife Ponds by Jenny Steele and it's available all over the place and it's £3.75. <laughs> Plants of the Week, Rich. Yeah. We're joined by Alison. Hello, Alison. Hello. Uh, Alison grows all our wildflower plants and also our hedging plants over at Buns Hill. Yeah, that's right, not too far away. Just over the river. Only across the river Y. So tell us about your farm, Al. Um, Well, the hedging plants are grown on three and a half acres, which doesn't sound very much at all. No, it doesn't. But you can actually fit a sort of six to ten thousand little plants in 50 metres. Wow. So they're all very productive. And they're all supplied as two-year-old bare-roots plants, which uh, wigglers produce. And the rest of the farm, you've got some amazing sheep, haven't you? Oh, yes, the, the uh, new Zwarbless... Well, it's pronounced Zwarbless, but it's um, spelled Um Some people call them Zwarbles, some uh-huh. people call them Zwarbless. Um, I think it's got a silent T, to be correct. Yeah, yeah. but they're chocolate sheep, aren't they? They're chocolate sheep. Oh, and they're got lovely. A brown, brown stripe down their faces oh. and a little white tip on their tails. And they're adorable and they're quite friendly too. And there's not many people that breed them, is there? No, um, I was number 89 breeder in the country. Now they've got over 200 in the society over the last five years that I was a member. 
and they've had their 10th anniversary this year. They've bought their sheep in the country. So. Ooh. Yeah, it's quite right. exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is what, what are they good for? Just being chocolate? Um, they're very milky and they're bred for their meat as well. And they're very good mothers. Um, they're pretty big, aren't they? Yeah, the rams are quite, quite yeah. a size, yes. <laughs> anyway, what was it? Plant of the week. Plant that of was the week. it. Yeah, yeah. What sort of? Uh, Alison's a, a fantastic expert at the <laughs> most native species of plants. Yeah. It? What have you brought us in there? Well, then, I brought in the spindle. Um, it. Has an amazing and um, berry in the autumn. Um, it's a bright pink with a vivid orange seed inside. Uh, it really is a fantastic hedgerow plant. I mean, and there can't be another plant that is. Um, as vibrant coloured as a spindle. Is it, do birds feed on those seeds? Yeah, the robins quite like the seeds. They match the, the robins' breast, don't they? They do. Because mm. you've got this bright orange. I mean, they really are bright coloured. They I look mean, like sweeties. Yeah. You could eat them, yeah. actually. Yeah. They've got Fantastic. a texture, sort could of shiny. Could human no, beings they are, eat them? they are poisonous. No. Um, but, um, but not to a robin, hopefully. No, hopefully not. <laughs> but it's such a gorgeous plant for, to grow in the house. Looking at it now, it's a lovely looking thing. And you were saying to me, Al, that you know, even if you've got a tiny garden, if you had just a few of these, yeah, just they actually three or four. Look, and where did you see them? Um, like, I saw them down when I was in holiday down in Devon on an estate down there, and they've just grown three or four together. Yeah. On the banks in their garden, and it was a mass of berries. It was just the most fantastic thing you could ever wish to imagine, and it's just the normal. Euronymus europaeus, just normal native spindle. So How old do they have to be before they fruit? Uh, three or four. But I mean, even if you're riding out in the countryside on your horse or driving along, you, you're bound to spot a spindle. You cannot not spot it. It's just such a vibrant colour. Yeah, and yet when you brought this into our office, everyone said, what's that? I know, I know. It's, it's not that yeah. common a it plant. It isn't, no. But when people do grow, they think it's absolutely amazing. But how big does it grow to? Um, about eight, between 8 and 10 foot, it's not over. Is that how tall it is or how fat it is? How tall it is. And yeah. how fat is it? 6, 7 foot. It grows sort of um, quite straggly on its own if right. just planted as a tree. Yeah. Um, if cut back to a hedge, it grows up in the hedge with the other plants. Um, on its own, it, it's quite a loner and quite, it's quite delicate as well. Um, it breaks easily. Um, but growing in a, in a clump of three or four just on its own is absolutely fine. Yeah. This is a perfect example um, of what it is. So what about looking after it? Because once it's part of a hedge, that's fair enough. You just trim the hedge, what, every year? Yeah, when, once a year, just trim it back in the autumn. But if you're going to grow a clump of three or four of these, well, actually, you're always planting odds, don't you? <laughs> so we'll have to have a clump of three or five. Right. Um, but if you've got a clump of those, what, what, what do you do with it then? Then Well, you just turn it back to whatever you want, really, for it to grow. I mean, there aren't any wrongs or rights of um, pruning back a hedge or plants. Really? Yeah, you, you grow them to what you, you want, um, however high you, you like them. And there are specifications in the books and things, but you grow to whatever. I mean, if you want it more bushy, you just trim it back lower in the first few years yeah. if you want it to grow higher then you just let it grow out a bit and perhaps trim the sides up so tell us how this how to buy this how does it come buy it in a pot I suppose in the summer but usually people want to plant this in the winter don't they so what happens and how would you plant it if you were going to plant this spindle out well it's best to plant it as a bare root plant they're planted from November to March in the dormant stages so to me that means the plant comes without a pot. 
it comes out of pots, it's bare roots, the roots should always remain moist, and it just looks basically like a stick with a few branches on, which in the winter people think, oh my god, it's dead. <laughs> boring. It's dead and boring, which it does look very boring. But in the spring, <coughs> people are amazed and they bring out and they're, they're so chuffed with their newly planted hedge. As long as you keep the roots moist, that's the most important thing about bare root hedging. Right. If they dry out at any stage, people don't understand this, that it will die and they won't realise it's dead until the spring. Mm. Yeah, actually. It's very important. Yeah. And there's a point in time where you mustn't plant bare roots anymore. Yeah, when, when they start growing, sort of around Easter time. Alison's yeah. very definite about this. Mm. Oh, the time is coming when we can't do it. Yeah. So when is it? Approximately end of March sort of Easter time it always kicks in. And so um, when the sap yeah, rises... Yeah, when the sap rises. <laughs> 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 so can you plant these right the way across the UK? Uh, the, the, yeah, they're yeah. fine. Well, mainly they've always said that spindle grows in chalky conditions. Yeah, right. um, but they are found all over the British Isles. They have a fantastic fibrous root um, compared with some of the other hedge plants. It's like dogwood, they have uh, fibrous roots as well, which they can adapt to most soil types with that root. Mm. Well, Well, thank you for bringing it in. Thank you. It is one of the most beautiful bearers on. It is absolutely astonishing. Yeah, Yeah, it almost looks, as I said, like a piece of candy. Yeah, it does. You (laughs) can eat those berries. Anyway, Al, we'll see you next week. Thank you very much. It's time for Monty with his worm cast. The Wiggly Worm Cast podcast by Monty, a weekly fact on worms. There are approximately. 2,700 different kinds of earthworms all over the world and 27 of them live in the UK. So that's the end of the Wiggly podcast for this week. It is. It's been a a really interesting session. We've talked about some really detailed topics, haven't we? Yeah, and I think also if anyone wants to contact us and uh, give some feedback on the show or uh, topics that we've spoken about, then they can email me at heather at wigglywigglers.co.uk or you, Rich, at... Uh, Richard at wigglywigglers.co.uk That's an original email. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, or you can click on Heather's blog from this podcast or go to wigglywigglers.co.uk and click on it from there. Great. And put your comments in. Good to get some feedback. Yep. And so on the day that, sadly, Ronnie Barker died, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from her. <laughs> goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>